think it's reached this critical point where it is absolutely a necessity for municipalities to build up fiber infrastructure. This is episode 253 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This is a special twofer week. Christopher interviewed several people at the recent Broadband Community Summit in Dallas, and we want to bring you the material while it's still fresh. We'll be back to our regular schedule next week. Diane Cruz and her consulting firm, NeoConnect, work with communities that are looking for ways to improve local connectivity. In this interview, Diane offers a consultant's perspective on Colorado's restrictive SB 152 and how it has affected local community initiatives to improve broadband. She shares how her firm approaches working with communities. Each one has unique goals and considerations while making public investment. Chris and Diane discuss some of the changes they've seen in both private and public investment and how it's happening. Learn more about Diane's firm at neoconnect.us. Now here's Christopher and Diane Cruz. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast, coming at you live once again. Well, I mean, we're live right now, but it's coming at you from the Broadband Community Summit in Dallas, Texas, uh, 2017. With me today is the president and CEO of NeoConnect, Diane Cruz. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. NeoConnect, I know that your firm is located in Colorado. There's tons of things happening in Colorado, but you do things around the country. Yeah, we are a nationwide consulting firm. We work with municipalities and local governments on broadband planning and implementation. And uh, we have projects all over the U.S., but you are absolutely right. There's a lot of work that's being done just right in our backyard in Colorado. You're about to kick off a number of projects in California. I know that you were involved in Tennessee, several other southeastern uh, states. But today we're just going to talk about Colorado. Uh, But first, let me just ask, have you had any good bike rides lately? Oh, gosh. We could (laughs) talk for hours about that. Yes, of course. Uh, Living in Glenwood Springs in Colorado, right in the middle of the mountains, is just the ideal place to go for a bike ride. I was talking to someone just the other day, talking about a bike ride across America, and I was thinking, you know, we could put together an interesting team. Um, I'm really good at flatlands, being from Minnesota, (laughs) so I can go, you know, 50, 60 miles with only a mile of up or down gain, so... I'll take the mountain passes. Right. It's perfect. (laughs) You can do the hard work and I'll just coast along. (laughs) Um, So the um, Colorado, uh, for people who are brand new to the show, um, this might be a surprise, but for everyone else is aware, nearly 100 uh, local governments, which includes uh, like almost half the counties, I guess, uh, in a lot of cities have opted out of a restrictive law in Colorado that says communities basically can't do anything in telecom without our authority, um, without a referendum. Right. Um, Senate Bill 152 is a law that was established in 2005. It was essentially written, I think, at the urging of some of the larger telephone and uh, cable companies. Right. At that time, Quest was headquartered in Denver, I think. Right. And so that was their territory. Right. And so the law basically states that a local government uh, is restricted in building out telecommunications infrastructure for citizens. Uh, The law states that they can build out infrastructure for other government entities as well as quasi-government entities, schools, hospitals, the medical clinic, libraries, Um, but they are only allowed to build out telecommunications infrastructure to citizens for the service providers to use. And even the service provider piece of that is what the law refers to as insubstantial compared to government use. Unfortunately, insubstantial is not defined in the law, and so uh, there isn't any 
indication of what is a, a, a large amount for the service provider and what is an insubstantial amount. It also restricts the local governments from entering into public-private partnerships, which, as you know, is a model that many municipalities use to help solve broadband challenges in their communities. Or certainly desire to use. I'd love to talk to you about what your definition of that is toward the end of the show. You know, when we look at a public-private partnership, we're trying to figure out how many there are, but there doesn't seem to be that many of them um, when you actually look at a true partnership. About 90 communities, uh, local municipalities and counties have opted out of this law. And so the provision there is a provision in the law that states that they could opt out with a 50% majority to opt out of the law and take back local control. And uh, in all of the elections that have been held, uh, Longmont was the first. They lost their first election, but then came back strong with a stronger advertising campaign, and it passed. And then since then, uh, over 90 communities have held out the election. It has passed with uh, overwhelming support in favor of opting out. On average, uh, the bo- vote has been in the 70 to 75 percent in favor of opting out. And in some communities like Telluride and Estes Park and Durango, over 95 percent of the citizens that voted wanted to opt out of that law. I think what's what was interesting about that, you know, in hindsight, I think it was originally written to be a barrier to entry for municipalities. And it's actually, I think, um, served just the opposite result. It's become this uh, spur of innovation for municipalities to step up and figure out ways of solving some of the broadband challenges that they have in their community. Right. I, I think that's 100% correct. Um, what I find interesting and, and what I think you're really the right person to tell us about is what happens next. Um, for people who are watching from the outside, you know, sometimes I talk to, to people who are following this from afar, people on the East Coast, West Coast, whatever, and they're thinking, wow, Colorado, you have so many communities that have opted out. But I'm not seeing a lot of stories as to what they're doing next. Um, as you know, this is not a vote to establish a, a Chattanooga or a Longmont style network. This is a, a vote to reclaim authority to then later make a decision. <laughs> so um, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, are there any patterns emerging for what comes next for uh, let's start with maybe urban areas and then and then talk about rural separately. You know, first of all, I I think that municipalities that want to solve uh, broadband, uh, that task should not be taken so lightly. It is um, often a very costly, capital-intensive endeavor for a municipality to build out, say, a fiber-to-the-home network. But um, so as a consultant, one of the things that we have to sift through early on in the process is what is the city's appetite? And at what level of investment do they feel comfortable entering into, um, you know, some type of infrastructure so that uh, it could potentially be leveraged in a public-private partnership, or it could potentially be leveraged to bring broadband to homes and businesses? Considering that it's a large capital expense, it should not be taken so lightly. It it does uh, require a lot of review and consideration on the our municipality side. Honestly, it's, it's, it is kind of a weird time in our industry because in larger metropolitan areas, we are seeing the cable companies rolling out uh, DOCSIS 3.1 that is supporting uh, gigabit-type ser- services. Um, they're also working on um, another version of DOCSIS that will allow for symmetrical gigabit services. And so I think And again, we're seeing that happening in mostly large metropolitan areas. That's where 
Comcast and Charter and the CenturyLinks of the world, if you will, are investing in fiber to the home like gigabit enabled services. So in some of the larger urban areas, I I think a lot of the municipalities are taking a let's wait and see approach and let's see if the private sector actually does step up. Mm -hmm. Municipalities in the metropolitan areas are having a different conversation. And that conversation is how can they build out smart city infrastructure to support the needs of local government. Three years ago, if you had told me CenturyLink was really going to invest substantial amounts of money in, let's just say it's top 25, top 30 markets for fiber to the home, uh, it's larger areas, I, I probably would have said, no, I think you're wrong. They're really not going to do that. But they have done that. They've been much more aggressive than I would have expected. Now, for a local leader, I think you can have a, a reaction that says, well, we're glad that there's additional investment. But we also feel that even if we have fast cable and if we have some fiber to the home from CenturyLink to some neighborhoods, we still want another option. Because a lot of times people just naively assume, I think, that these are cities that have nothing or that they're, they're, they're just very poorly served. And I think in many cases they're the average and they're looking for something better. Yeah, I think that's what happens too. So we, we should first of all say that we shouldn't make the assumption that in every major metropolitan area, they have gigabit type services because that isn't happening. That isn't true. Like even in the Denver metropolitan area, CenturyLink is not uh, deploying fiber to the home in a very fast uh, fashion. And so in many parts of, say, the Denver metro area, there are um, people that can't get adequate broadband services and maybe even can't get broadband services that meet the minimum definition of 25 meg down and three megabit upload. Right, I'll, and I'll, I'll readily concede that. I've, um, I've been more surprised in the Twin Cities and in Seattle and Portland, and I may have just assumed that it was true in Denver, but they may be less aggressive in that region. Or, you know, I might just be, it's always hard to tell what's really happening on the ground because, frankly, government has totally fallen down on keeping accurate statistics, so most of this is rumor and, and asking around. So anyway, but um, you were saying. Yeah. So I think, you know, how we figure out what's rumor and um, what's advertising, you know, what's fiber to the press release, if you will, rather than what's actually happening on the ground is working directly with the municipalities. You can see what permits are being pulled. And um, from that, uh, sit down to understand what each of those companies are doing within that municipality. So, for example, in the city of Arvada, which is a suburb of Denver, Comcast has stated that it will be one of their first target areas to offer gigabit-type services. And we are seeing that actually in the city of Arvada as they're pulling permits for fiber construction to get fiber out to the nodes, out to the neighborhoods, deeper into the neighborhoods. So I would like to bring back in the smart city conversation as it relates to these um, larger metropolitan areas because... What is happening, what is the conversation, if you will, is that infrastructure needs to be built. And broadband is one of the components that will be supported on this infrastructure. But the reason why many cities are building out fiber and building out uh, more conduit and facilities, I think, is to uh, make their cities um, more efficient. So they're uh, rolling out traffic management systems. They're rolling out uh, more complex lighting fixture systems. They're putting you know, sensors along every uh, corner of their city 
uh, to support smart city applications. And so they're having to build fiber. They're having to put in um, facilities and infrastructure. And if they can do it with the private sector, great. Mm -hmm. But they're going to do it without the private sector as well. well. I would just add one other use case to that. And I'm, I'm curious if you'd react quickly. Don't feel compelled to. If I was a city contemplating those kinds of builds right now, and I saw this 5G on the horizon, having small cells, and which need to be fiber connected in many cases, um, some cities, I think, react to that with, uh, oh, man, it's going to be really hard to permit and deal with all this stuff. If I was looking at it, I'd be thinking, wow, that's another anchor customer for the fiber I'm building out through my city. And this is going to help me justify um, the, the cost to help drive revenues because whether it's Verizon, Sprint, or AT&T or whatever, um, I would love for them to be using my fiber to backhaul to their central location in the city or something like that. Yeah, if they will acquire the fiber from the city. I mm -hmm. think it's a great application. I think it's also a great opportunity as this is happening where small cells are being deployed and fiber is being built to those small cell sites, it's another opportunity for the city to gain some assets. So I think the first thing that a city needs to do um, is look at a shadow conduit policy or a dig once policy. And what is shadow conduit? So shadow conduit is just um, maybe it's a version of a dig once policy that anytime there is work being done in the right of way by, say, Comcast or CenturyLink or any utility provider, it could be the electric company, or it could be a road widening project or a trail project. Anytime there's work being done, a shadow conduit needs to be installed at the same time. And then the city would typically only pay for the incremental cost of the conduit, putting the conduit in. It essentially takes the cost of construction down from, say, $30 a foot for new construction down to, it should be, you know, 5 to $6 a foot to put in an additional conduit while work is being done. As say Comcast is upgrading their fiber network and putting fiber out further into the neighborhoods to support their gigabit-enabled services, uh, as they're laying fiber, they should be putting in shadow conduit on behalf of the city. And then the city could potentially use that as leverage, if you will, for a broadband strategy, but also as um, infrastructure that can support smart city applications. So as someone who's worked with cities on these sorts of things, let me ask you, people might think Comcast is going to oppose that. But I actually think that the number one source of opposition to that in many cases is the public works people for the city who might be saying, look, we like to build roads. We maintain this and that. We don't do conduit. We don't have to deal with that sort of thing. What do you do? What do you advise your clients when you come across that? Um, usually the public works department would not be responsible for laying the conduit, um, but they would continue to um, do what they normally do, which, which is to approve the permit process. Um, I'll take the city of Arvada as an example because we just um, finished implementing some rules around shadow conduit. And we did get some opposition, honestly, from the Comcast and CenturyLinks and the existing electric company also uh, pushed back a bit. Uh, but we sat down with them and we heard what their concerns were, and then we mitigated those concerns. So one concern is that it would slow down the permitting process. And we had sat down with the city of Arvada and we mapped out their priority locations and their priority applications for smart city. And we did a 
preliminary design of a fiber network, and so we were able to identify priority routes for them. The city of Arvada said that they would not slow down the existing 14-day turnaround to get a permit approved. And what they will do when a permit comes in is they uh, verify uh, whether this is a priority route based upon the design that we put together. And if it is, uh, they will notify the company within three days. Um, and then the permit will still get approved within the 14-day window. So it's, it's smart mm-hmm. conduit installation. It's not just installing conduit everywhere. Um, it's, there is a strategy behind it, if you will. One other pushback that the industry had was um, that it would be a burden to them. And the city agreed that they would pay for all of the incremental financial costs of the shadow conduit and that there would be no burden to uh, the service provider. And really, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the contractor that's doing the work. So Comcast is not doing the work and neither is the city. Um, The contractor is doing the work and it's easy for them to throw in and spare conduit. Right. No, it's actually um, kind of I just having talked with some people who are working often in, in smaller communities where they may first uh, approach the, the network owner and then figure out there's a big bureaucracy they can't navigate. So then they just go to the contractor and be like, hey, you want to make an extra couple bucks? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that happens and too. I probably shouldn't say that to cities where they, they want a permitting and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you got to just get the job done, it seems right. like. <laughs> no. You said that, not me, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, I, and you're disagreeing with me, I can tell. Yeah. It's okay. Um, the um, the other question, and you you answered this, but I really want to just make sure people noticed it. Um, you're you don't just throw conduit in the ground. You not only just prioritized it, but you did a layout so that you would know where to put vaults and things like that. Because exactly. yeah, because I mean, if you have this big long conduit, you need you don't you need to figure out where you're going to break it to gain access to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think what the takeaway is often, say from conferences like this, is that a city would just go put in conduit and then you know three years later when they want to go use it they can't access it so yeah so we have done um, a design um, so we know exactly where the vaults are going we know what size of vaults we want we know the specifications of the conduit and we have the priority routes already identified and that's in a you know KMZ file that the city can use anytime there's a permit that's uh, filed they can easily check that preliminary design to see if it's a priority route for them. Right. So it's smart conduit installation. So let's let's look back at the the rural issues then for um, you know much of Colorado, quite rural, not just rural, but expense terrifyingly expensive rocky <laughs> rockies rural. So what's happening in in rural Colorado? Um, well, I think maybe kind of going back to one of the questions that you had about, gosh, there seems like there were a lot of communities that have opted out of Senate Bill 152. Why aren't we seeing more projects um, being installed? And I think the reality is that we are seeing more projects installed. Typically, they're done on a regional basis. So, for example, Region 10 is six counties and 22 communities. All of them have opted out. So they're, you know, 30 of the 90 communities that have opted out of Senate Bill 152. It's worth noting Colorado has this history. So so when you say Region 10, it's like these group of communities that have a history of working together. And it's it's worked out really well for how Colorado is organized and allowed for grassroots leadership. So I just wanted to put a pin in that quickly because I don't know if other states have done this as well, but this is a known thing in Colorado that's worked well historically. Yeah, it's worked really well. Um, It's a regional council of governments. And um, 
They have worked together for a number of issues around transportation, around economic development, and now around broadband. Um, but they are local community leaders that are actively involved in solving their community's issues and problems and making their communities a better place to live. And they work together as a region to make it happen. So there's a lot of synergies that I think uh, have come about from that process. But now a lot of these communities or regional councils of governments are coming together to help solve broadband challenges. And uh, there was state funding that was set aside for regional projects through the Department of Local Affairs. Uh, there was $20 million that was set aside for broadband implementation. And so many of these communities leveraged that funding and then further le leveraged it, uh, perhaps with an economic development grant or some other form of grant to build out infrastructure. So I would say if you look around the state, there's probably uh, 12 uh, regional council of governments that are working together to put in infrastructure. And they're spending money and they're making that happen. Some of it is DOLA money. Some of it is EDA. And DOLA is the Department of the Local Department Affairs. Department of Local Affairs in, in Colorado. So uh, maybe taking the example of Region 10 and um, what they have done. So I mentioned that they are six counties in 17 to 22 communities that make up the membership of Region 10. And the size of their territory is the same size as the state of Vermont. So it's a massively large um, geographical space. And if you, I guess if you compressed it to make it all flat, it would probably be this even bigger. Yeah, if you pressed it, <laughs> absolutely, yes. In, in the mountains in western Colorado, it's rocky terrain, and they are building a middle-mile infrastructure uh, that will connect all of their counties and all of their communities with fiber. It was a, a very expensive project, but what we were able to put forward was a number of partnerships to reduce the cost of building fiber to all of those communities. Um, at first glance, we were looking at 50 to $75 million to build out fiber to connect um, the region. And we were able to identify fiber that the local power companies owned for their SCADA systems and power management operations. And then we also identified fiber, long haul fiber, if you will, that was in place from Tri-State, who's the power generation and administration, kind of the wholesale provider of power in the region. We were able to negotiate a partnership with both Delta Montrose Electric Association and Tri-State to reduce the cost of just acquiring or providing as an in-kind contribution existing fiber. Now, if I could just jump in for a second, this is one of those things where I think sometimes people might hear that and they think, well, I wanted to do that sort of a thing, but my co-op was resistant or they weren't super enthusiastic about it. Now, my understanding is Delta Montrose Electric Association was at first skeptical, uh, not necessarily wanting to. Uh, it took some local organizing to put pressure on them and to make them understand this would be a, a good thing to support. And so this is not something where everyone was just like, yeah, let's all work together. There was real work oh, that had absolutely. to be done along the way. Yeah, there was real res resistance at first because uh, DMEA um, obviously saw their mission is to provide power to their constituents and they didn't want to get distracted. Um, but there was a lot of uh, local organizing and grassroots efforts around the business community coming to the board of directors meeting for DMEA to talk about how important broadband is to the economic development well-being of all of their communities and that they did have a vested interest in 
making sure that we could retain and um, keep uh, companies to be based there and also to keep people from you know continuing to live there. So to make a long story short, uh, they organized over 70 business people to come to the board of directors meeting for DMEA to encourage them to support the Region 10 project. And they did wholeheartedly. And, and um, it's a great partnership between DMEA and Region 10 and Tri-State, where we took the spend from uh, 50 to $75 million down to $17 million. And then uh, Region 10 applied for grant funding through the Department of Local Affairs and then leveraged that further with an EDA grant that all told about um, $3 million will be spent in a cash contribution to build this 50 to $75 million network. After Region 10 received their funding, Delta Montrose Electric Association actually announced that they would be offering last mile solutions and last mile services gigabit to every home with Google-like pricing. And so in uh, they're building that out in Delta and in Montrose counties now, and they're also further expanding that footprint um, on a regional basis. So I think that that's a huge success story, and maybe that's not something that's being written about in our industry magazines, but it's a great success story that Colorado has, and I think it's a good model that could potentially be followed for many of these rural areas that are difficult to serve is to partner up with the power company to make something happen. Yeah, we, we're excited about that approach, and we've done a, a lot of coverage of different electric co-ops doing that sort of thing. But it's actually kind of interesting because it answers one of the questions, right? I mean, you're saying these are 30 communities that have opted out, and that was an important part of their organizing, although the ultimate solution in, in many ways is actually not necessarily a municipal solution. But that opting out was a kind of a, a step that took and united them and, and helped them to make sure they had lots of options to choose from and then ultimately have gone with a solution that is not going to add to my number of uh, municipal broadband networks on our map. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, I would say that one of the things that we do that might be different from our colleagues in the industry is there are so many ways to solve broadband. And one way to solve that is to build a municipal fiber to the home network. But there's a whole bunch of other things that municipalities and counties can do to improve broadband services that may not hit your list, if you will. Maybe that's one good example. It's not a municipal network, if you will, that is building fiber to the home, but it is a collaboration of municipalities that have definitely come together to solve broadband challenges. And in this case, um, Region 10 will support an open access system that's available to anybody. So we've reduced the biggest cost for all of the service providers in the area by reducing those backhaul costs to almost nothing through the Region 10 network. And then we happen to have a last mile gigabit provider with Delta Montrose Electric Association. But I will say that there are a whole bunch of other service providers that are also able to improve their services in their respective communities um, because of the middle mile work that Region 10 is doing. So that's one way to solve it. I, I want to talk about another project that is also a lot of uh, collaboration, and it may not hit your list as well. Oh, that's all right. Jefferson County Schools is a um, school district that is located in, in the Denver metropolitan area, and they want to build fiber to their 155-plus schools. And um, that, too, is a you know 35 to $50 million project that they did not have funding for. And so they have hired us to work with the uh, 
15 or 16 municipalities that their schools are operating um, within the city's footprint and to collaborate with the schools to figure out how we could work together and how we could collaborate so that everyone could get their needs met, get fiber built to key critical anchor institutions to government offices, get smart city applications in place, and then build fiber to the schools. And um, sometimes the solution is E-rate. In other cases, it might be rural health care grants, but in the case that we're finding is very effective in the Denver metropolitan area is public safety. And public safety has their own source of funding that is available to improve um, safety and their ability to respond to a crisis. Now, I'm just I'm curious. I'm, it gives me a lot of hope to hear that these are working together because in the past we've always heard criticism that some of these programs uh, would be silos where if you were going to build one network, it couldn't share anything with another network, but it sounds like some of that's been resolved. Yeah, I think so. I think there was initially some resistance to working together. And, you know, I think we're all guilty of this, that we're all so busy in our own little worlds, and we do work in silos. Our mission, if you will, for that project is to break down the silos and to get people to work together and to collaborate to make uh, something happen for everybody's benefit. And so this is turning out to be a great project as well, where Jefferson County Public Safety, I think, is interested in putting cameras and um, high-speed fiber to all of the schools, and it improves their ability to respond to a crisis at the school. Mm -hmm. And so that's um, effective with their mission and their strategy, and it allows the schools to get fiber um, for you know, enhancing their education experience for their students. For people who haven't seen it, we've we did a video about Ammon, Idaho, where they have developed uh, applications around uh, specifically um, making sure that emergency nine one one centers are alerted in the event that there's a gunshot in the schools. And so uh, there's some really interesting work that's being done. A lot of people are thinking about how not just to have these sort of the surveillance cameras and the high speed, but how to really make sure that. Um, they're integrated well, and that you have these different actors talking to each other and, and coordinating ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It's just it, that's a great project, and it's a great project of collaboration. And it may not be one that would hit your municipal fiber list, if you will. No, but it'll probably hit our list of communities that build anchor networks and see savings. Because I'm guessing that the schools, when this network's all completed, will save a tremendous amount of money. They'll have higher connectivity uh, to their locations. They'll probably pay less. And most importantly, from my point of view, is they'll have control over future costs. You know, the contract would come up in, in three years for whoever they're with. They'd have to rebid it. And they wouldn't really have a sense of, is our, was our price going to increase by 10%, 30%? Now you have security and budgeting, which I have to think is a big deal for local governments. Oh, it's a huge deal. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's critical that uh, local governments own their own networks for supporting their government needs. Schools need to have their own networks as well to support education. Um, and I think those are the trends that we're seeing. And then if that infrastructure can be leveraged to do a public-private partnership for broadband, then that may be a good strategy to, to serve the homes and businesses within that community. So I'm about to go on a panel in a little bit. And the person that, that will, another person that will be on that panel who's very much an opponent of municipal broadband uh, recently wrote an article in which he said, this is why we're not seeing more municipal broadband networks. And the premise being that we're not seeing a lot of growth. So you and your experience and having to talk to other consultants, 
What's your just, the, I would say, as we finish the interview, what's your top line? Are you seeing growth in municipal investments and, and working to solve these problems? I think it's reached this critical point where it is absolutely a necessity for municipalities to build up fiber infrastructure. Now, whether they use that to build out to homes and businesses is maybe something that they should carefully study. But I'm, I think that what we're seeing is in almost every city, they're building out fiber infrastructure, perhaps to their key anchor institutions and to their schools and libraries, or as a way to leverage a public-private partnership for broadband to homes and businesses. But I, w- I would say it's happening everywhere, and it's just hit a critical mass that we can't report on every hmm. single opportunity. I think in Region 10, you know, that's a good quantifiable project because they received funding and we're implementing it, and there's um, partnerships that have been developed. But all over the state, I think municipalities are putting in fiber infrastructure to support their anchor institutions. And then to use that as a way to put together a strategy for broadband uh, for the home and homes and businesses. Right. I think to some extent, you're, we're a victim of our own success in that if you're not announcing 100 gigabit to every home for $5 a month, the press might be thinking, ah, oh, boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, the idea that you're just you're adding a bunch of conduit and fiber and, and in three to five years, it'll, it'll be used and it'll be used in interesting ways. It's, it's not as sexy of a story. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I don't know who your panelist is, but I would have to say that that person is not correct. Um, We're seeing a lot of municipalities put in infrastructure. Now, they may not have a gigabit to the home municipally owned fiber to the premise strategy, but uh, they may be using a different strategy to improve broadband for their constituents. Well, thank you so much for coming and telling us what's going on in Colorado. And I think a a real picture as to what cities are wrestling with uh, around the country. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. That was Christopher and Diane Cruz, founder and CEO of NeoConnect, talking about municipal broadband deployment. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 253 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>